This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With free event and show insurance for members and clubs, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. For this episode, you'll have to put on those funny colored glasses. We're going 3D. That's right. Later in the show, Jim will chat with Proto87 modeler, author, and blogger Rennie Gourley about his foray into 3D printing as a modeling medium, an emerging technology that he says makes building his choice of obscure prototype possible. But first... Trevor and his guest, Duncan McCree, explore a new dimension in model train control and self-contained locomotive power that does away with electrified rails and dirty track. When Jim and I started the Model Railway Show, we promised to introduce you to the innovators in the hobby. Today's guest is a great example, but to appreciate how he's pushing the hobby's boundaries, you'll have to crawl under the layout. Duncan McCree is the brass hat of the Tam Valley Railroad, a freelance HO scale layout inspired by the Southern Pacific. What makes his layout particularly special, though, is that it's also the testbed for a growing catalogue of state-of-the-art products from Duncan's company, Tam Valley Depot. These include DCC electronics packages to manage polarity and turnout frogs and special track work such as Ys, reverse loops and turntables, servo motors, controllers and accessories for turnouts and semaphore signals, independent power boosters for DCC-controlled accessories, and accessory decoders to power and control LEDs for signals and other applications via DCC. It seems that every product Duncan releases is something that hobbyists desperately needed, even though they didn't know it at the time. But what really has people buzzing these days is a demonstration on YouTube of a battery-powered radio control system that Duncan plans to release this year. We'll have a link to that video on our website, so be sure to check it out. And while you watch it, think about how your hobby would change if you no longer had to wire your track. We'll get to that later in the interview, so let's get started. Duncan joins us today from his home in San Diego to tell us about Tam Valley Depot and offer his thoughts on the future of model railway control. Duncan, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you. I've been a fan of the Model Railway Show since it started. I think I've listened to every episode, so I'm thrilled to be on it. Well, thank you. That's always great to hear. Now, your website mentions that your layout, the Tam Valley Railroad, is the testbed for your electronics products. Which came first, the layout or the business? Oh, the layout, definitely. I used to be too busy to run a business like this, but then the biotech industry did us all a favor and laid me off, so I've had lots of time now to build electronics and build my layout. So I've been having a lot of fun. So really, Tam Valley Depot came about because you had a little bit of extra time on your hands. Yeah, I started building some interesting boards and people started wanting them. And then I I realized I couldn't just give away hundreds of boards, so I had to start a business to sell these boards to people. Well, I remember reviewing one of your very first products, the Hex Frog Juicer for Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. And, you know, frankly, it's one of the slickest devices I've ever reviewed. Thanks for making that. Was that your first product? Actually, it was my second product. The first product I called the Quad. It was a servo board to drive servos for controlling turnouts. And, of course, that brought up the problem of how to change the frog polarity since I no longer had the contacts on the bottom of the tortoises. And I came up with this idea for the frog juicer. And I mentioned it to some people and a guy in uh, New Jersey, Ted Pamperin, 
said, I'll order a whole bunch of those because I really want them. So he made the leap, ordered a bunch of them, and the rest is history. I guess since it's a hex frog juicer, he made the hop instead of the leap. But uh, <laughs> we should mention that you offer this in different configurations so people can get one for one turnout, two turnouts, or that the hex does up to six. These can also be used for auto-reversing the polarity on wise loops and turntables, right? That's right. You can also use them as an auto-reverser by putting a jumper on the board, which sets the outputs as pairs so that they change polarity together as a group. They're not really great for auto-reversers because they only carry two amps of current, but they're really good for turntables and they're really good for Ys. And we should stress that these products only work on DCC-powered layouts. I guess that's another reason why the few DC holdouts out there might want to consider upgrading their layouts, eh? Right. Well, I took advantage of the fact that the DCC power is always on. With the DC layout, the power goes from zero on up, and when at the very low voltages, the frog juicer won't work. Okay, I see. Now, you said that you actually started with servos and controllers for turnout controls. Why did you decide to go that route? Well, I was going to build a multi-deck layout, and I didn't want to have big, huge green boxes hanging down from the top level of the layout, and I had a whole bunch of servos around. I used to build radio-controlled robots, very small ones, about a pound in weight, and my son and I would go to tournaments where we fought with these. And the servos were remarkably tough. They survived many battles. And I thought, well, maybe I could use these to throw my switches on, on my layout. And that way I could build a very small switch machine. And it worked pretty well. And I got started on that. And various people jumped in. Craig Biskeyer on the East Coast jumped in really early and helped me out. And he made his layout a test bed for the servos, and we worked through them. And now we have some pretty good products. These servos are quite small. They're only about an inch and a quarter in length. So that's one of the advantages, obviously, is they take up a fraction of the space that a regular stall motor takes up, regardless of what color box it comes in. What other advantages are there to using servos? They hold position precisely where you tell them to go. So they're unlike a stall motor, which goes to either end, depending on what the polarity is, the servo tries to get to a specific angle. So they're really good for things like stub turnouts, where they will hold the middle position quite tightly, even though there's no stock rails that the points are against. And they're really good for semaphores, where you have three positions. It's easy to adjust it so you can get the blade at just the right position. Okay, and I guess even for regular turnouts with points in them, you're able to set the position that that servo is going to hold so you can set things like the amount of tension on the points. That's right. You set the servo to go to exactly the spot you want, so you've got just the tension on the points that you want. But you still have a lot of power. So if you have a sticky spot in between when the points are moving, the servo will power right through it. Excellent. One of the things you offer that goes with this is a fascia controller. It's a little push button with a pair of LEDs to indicate turnout position. That looks like an ideal solution for people who are building Fremo modules, which require turnout controls on both sides of the module too. That's right. By using a push button instead of a toggle switch, I can arrange it so you can have as many controllers as you want to control one turnout. Another nice thing you can do with servos is you can put a Y cable on the output and control two servos with one output so that they both move exactly the same amount at exactly the same rate. And that's really useful for crossovers. As I looked through your website and looked at the products that you offer, it struck me that servo-based systems that use microcontrollers to control them are pretty powerful tools for modelers compared to traditional motors with basic power connections. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, servos are really underused. There's many things that they could be useful for in animating your layout or controlling different things in your layout. You can move gates and doors. You can move, you know, crossing gates. In larger scales, people have used them to open couplers. 
So you can arrange to have the servo inside of a tender or a boxcar and have it lift the uh, coupler bar. I hadn't even thought of that. I've done some work in O-Scale and that would be beautiful. Do servos spell the death of traditional ways of controlling turnouts, do you think? Or is this something that we're, we're going to see more and more people as they start new layouts, abandoning things like stall motors and sort of dedicated circuitry to going to servos and using microcontrollers to move them? I see the hobby moving in two directions at the same time, actually. There are people who are taking advantage of microprocessors and all the things you can do with them to control different things in your layout. I mean, these are people who traditionally like CTC and signaling and having a dispatcher and all these things. At the same time, a lot of people are moving towards making it simpler and simpler and getting rid of all electronics altogether and moving the points with their fingers. Both of these are interesting directions to go. Electronics are moving in a direction where your computer and your electronics and your layout are going to be more and more tightly integrated so that you can use your smartphone to control your turnouts and you can animate things as groups and you can set up routes. And this is a very exciting direction for people who like to fiddle with electronics and computers. But I think a lot of people just like to have their model rail would be quite simple and not have all that electronics in there. I have to say, I sometimes fall down on the Luddite side of things. I like using hand throws and stuff, but even still, I find that products like the frog juicer that you've made, they add a different type of simplicity because you've done all that logic on the board. And anyone who hasn't seen this, it's a little printed circuit board with a bunch of chips and components on it. Because all the smarts and the logic is there, to wire it up, it's a matter of minutes. And it takes care of something that otherwise involves a lot of wires and a lot of fussing about trying to make sure you get things hooked up properly. So thank you for that. Let's get on to what everybody is talking about now, which is your new locomotive control system. It's battery-powered and radio-controlled. Can you give us the elevator ride description of how this thing works? Tony Custer had a great name for it. He called it a DCC overlay. There have been some radio-controlled cabs out there, but they basically have been used to replace the DCC system. And myself and many people, we have large investments in DCC. We have many throttles and we have lots of decoders. And I was thinking, well, why should we throw all that away? What we really need to do is just replace the track. The track is the problem, right? It's always dirty and you have to wire it with all these feeders. What we really want is to replace the track. And to do that, I built a transmitter that will transmit the DCC signal. So you still use all the throttles that you have to generate commands for your locomotives. And these commands are sent over the air to a radio in the tender of the locomotive. You just need one transmitter and as many radios as receivers as you have locomotives. You keep the DCC decoder that's already in the locomotive. And what this device does is it takes the signal out of the air and then uses the battery to recreate the DCC right inside the tender. So you no longer need the wheel pickups and you don't have to worry about your track being dirty. That's excellent. And you also don't have to worry about special track work, too. I know one of the things that drives people crazy is trying to wire things like a double slip switch. And if you don't have to worry about the polarity through a complex piece of track work like that, because you don't need power to the rails at all, you can just solder everything up solid and away you go. Yeah, the other thing is that I have now put this radio into a number of locomotives from small ones to big ones to test it. And what I've noticed is that the locomotives run much more smoothly off of battery power. A lot of the problems that I've had in my locomotives that I've attributed to bad gears or something like that have turned out to be the pickups from the wheels not making good contact or producing noise. And the battery produces nice, smooth power, and the locomotives themselves are much smoother running under the battery power. 
which is one thing I didn't really expect because I thought, well, if my track is super clean, then my locomotive should run well. But even then, it doesn't always run as nicely as it can. Sure, because a locomotive has pickups on it and they're often little pieces of bent phosphor bronze or something and they're rubbing on the back of a wheel or on a wheel tread and they can get dirty or they can not connect properly and stuff. So really the way that modelers have traditionally dealt with this is try to put as many pickups on as possible and hope that one or two of them are actually picking up at any one time, right? Exactly right. Okay, so that's a good advantage. Now you talked about putting it into different size locomotives. How small a package does this get if you're putting a battery, a receiver, and a decoder into a locomotive. How small can we get before this is just impractical? Well, the size of the unit is smaller than you'd think because of the new lithium polymer batteries that are available. This technology has been driven by people who want to fly radio-controlled helicopters and things like that. And there are some lithium polymer batteries that are about the size of a 9-volt battery, and they can run your locomotive for several hours of continuous running. So if you operate your locomotive in the normal way, where you just run it here and there and it stops, it'll actually run for a long time between chargings. Okay, yes, because you're not drawing off the battery to run the motor. Now, does this support sound decoders as well? It does. It supports sound decoders. There's absolutely no problem with them. So any DCC decoder, sound or not, will work with the system. It fits very easily into steam locomotives. We've put several in the steam locomotives. Unfortunately, most diesels that you buy these days have every spare bit of space inside them filled with metal to make their weight as big as possible. So if you can mill the metal away, you'd have absolutely no problem putting the battery in, and the battery would replace the weight of the metal, and uh, you'd still have good traction. But you could use a B unit. This would be ideal for AB units. Sure. And I guess people have been milling locomotive frames in order to install sound before sound was something that was a factory option. So it's certainly nothing new to the hobby if people want to get that done. And there have been services that have done milling in the past. There's probably services out there that will do it now. Obviously, if you're using a battery, it needs a way to be recharged. And people are saying, well, do I have to take my locomotive apart to get the battery out or cut a plug into it? Or is it possible to recharge it You know, by setting the thing on a piece of track that has power going to the rails. How does that work for recharging a battery? Well, working on a system to recharge the battery from the wheels, I think that's a good solution for a lot of people. Some people don't really want to have any power at all through the batteries. And what we've done is we've just arranged it so that the recharging plug is easily accessible from the outside locomotive. We put it underneath the coal load and a tender. So you remove the coal load and you have access to the battery or I set it up so that I reach in with a pair of pliers into the locomotive cab and I pull the charger out, charge it up and stick it back in. I think that way of going is ideal for people who want to have little, you know, logging locomotives on uh, little modules. That's sort of, you know, smaller layout. Don't even bother with any power to the track at all and just recharge your locomotives. People have bigger layouts. Most of them I've talked to really want to have some way to recharge through the wheels If you have a fleet of locomotives, you don't want to have to go around and grab each locomotive, take it apart, and stick it up to the charger. It would be nice to just have them all sitting in the engine house and have them sitting on tracks that would have the power or have a section of your layout where there's power by a water tank and if your battery gets too low then you have to sit there and stop by the water tank for a while to recharge your battery. What still needs to be done on this uh, and when do we expect to see it out on the market? Well I still need to work on the charging circuit. That's going to take a little bit of time. It has to be done right can't have your batteries exploding in your locomotive because your charging circuit's not good. So I have to take some care there. And then before I can sell it, I have to get FCC approval of the radios, unfortunately. That'll take some time. 
it'll probably be late summer or fall before I can have this available to everybody on the market. Is this using unlicensed spectrum then? Yeah, it's going to be running in the 9.16 megahertz band in the U.S. And then in Europe, they have a similar band, 869 megahertz. They're called the ISM bands. The user doesn't have to license the radio. I have to have the sure. radios examined to make sure they don't put out too much interference or sidebands, you know. Right. Okay. Right. You've been working on a book about microcontrollers for model railroads. Tell us a bit about that. What's going on there? Well, I always wanted a book like that. So I decided I should write one because I had spent many, many hours reading books about electronics and microcontrollers, and none of them ever mentioned using them for model railroads. But they're all over model railroads these days. You've got them in your decoders, obviously, and accessory decoders and and all that. So there's many uses for them on automating layouts and running locomotives and stuff. But there isn't a lot of information on how to do that. So I started writing a book. This book is going along at a glacial pace. I'm writing a a chapter every six months or something. So it's not going to come out right away. But I also thought this would be a really good way to get a lot of younger people into the hobby. I mean, my son's going to college now. And of course, you know, what is he learning? But he's learning how to program robots and microcontrollers. And all these things are becoming second nature to our younger people. So although this might be something that's intimidating somebody who's older, I think that this would be a really good door into the hobby for some bright young minds. That's an excellent point, and it's a great idea. Listen, it's been great talking to you today. Great to hear about Town Valley Depot, and congratulations on building a company that is obviously filling a need. Don't spend too much time writing that book if it's going to hold up the radio-controlled battery-operated power system, because I know everyone's waiting for that. And thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. Well, thank you, Trevor, for having me. It's been a wonderful time. Duncan McCree is the owner of Tam Valley Depot, a company specializing in model railway electronics. Trevor, when I first saw Duncan's system on YouTube, I promised myself to watch its development closely. This could be a real boon for the older modelers with aging knees and bifocals that don't want to do the under layout stuff anymore. The other interesting thing, though, is it could be the gateway to get younger people interested in the hobby. Uh, Duncan talked about that a lot, and I think he's right on about it, that people who are in electronics programs know about servos and know how to work them. They may look at this and say, hey, here's an interesting way that I can apply that knowledge into a hobby. And this isn't new technology, by the way. Back in the 80s, RMC had an article, but it took a whole ABA unit to do this. So the technology is now bringing us to the point where it becomes possible with smaller locomotives. So that's good. Yeah. Well, if you're a long-time listener, be sure to spread the word about our little show. If you're new to the Model Railway Show, welcome aboard. Be sure to visit our website's episode guide where you can listen to all of our earlier shows. The topics are timeless, and the links to each interview are an education in themselves. Of course, the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find Find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. It's time now for Jim to welcome his guest to our little studio. Rennie Gourley may think outside the box, but he designs his models inside the box. Put on your 3D glasses and all will become clear. I confess to being something of a Luddite. I probably never will be able to marry the creative ideas in my head to the emerging technologies that would allow me to render better models. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about such things. I just hang out with the smart people. People like our next guest, Rennie Gourlay of North Vancouver, British Columbia. 3D printing is the latest big thing in our modeling world, and outside of our little hobby, it could be a giant thing, changing the world of manufacturing in ways we cannot yet imagine. Rene is the sharp end of a narrow line of modelers exploring its potential. You may have seen pictures of his Proto 87 Canada Atlantic Combine in the hobby press or at an RPM meet. He designed that model 
model in a computer and then had it printed in plastic in three dimensions by a firm in the Netherlands. He's already designing and selling models without leaving his keyboard. That's heady stuff indeed. Rene is the founder of the Proto 87 SIG, where you can find a great blog about his projects. His article on planning and modeling the Canada Atlantic in fine scale appeared in the 2001 edition of Model Railroad Planning. And he just had an article on 3D printing of that baggage car in the March issue of Railroad Model Crafts magazine. So be sure to check that out. Rene is with us now to talk about the technology and ramifications of 3D printing. First of all, Renee, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed reading your blogs on the Proto 87 site, and thank you for producing your swing axle truck frames and S-scale as well as HO. The group I belong to did a group order for them, and they look pretty cool. I was wondering who had bought so many of them. I've sold far more S-scale trucks than HO trucks so far, and thank you for your business. Well, you know, at the particular time we ordered those, there weren't any other arch bar trucks available in S-scale scale and double arch bar a little early for us but they just look so cool we had to try them out i've got some proto 64 wheel sets in mine and they they look cool so i'm gonna have to find a car for them i wondered renee is 3d printing the dawn of a new type of arts and crafts movement i guess insofar as you consider arts and crafts as the sort of democratization of production perhaps it is Perhaps one day we will all have 3D printers or there will be 3D printers distributed throughout your neighborhood and things that you want, you will get produced locally. So in that case, perhaps so. Again, we hope our listeners have reviewed the links before opening this interview. So let's start with the basics. How does a 3D printer work? There are several types of 3D printers, but fundamentally they all work on principle of printing layers of a material. So if you took, for example, a sphere and you wanted to print a sphere, which is a three-dimensional object, you could break that into many, many layers that are all circles. So you print a small circle, and on top of that, you print a slightly bigger circle, doing something about the fact that they overlap and overhang on the edges, and slightly bigger circle and slightly bigger circle. And after you've got enough circles that are getting bigger, you start going smaller again. And if you add all those circles, one on top of the other together, eventually you've got something that's sort of spheric, but it has steps to it. So this is a printer where the head not only moves back and forth, but up and down. Exactly. And the medium is not an ink, but as you mentioned, some material. That's right. A type of plastic, let's say. 3D printers can print in plastic, which is very relevant for us. Metals, also relevant for us ceramics, glass, even concrete. I knew about the plastic. The concrete amazes me. There are research programs now and possibly companies around the idea of 3D printing buildings. My gosh. What does it require in order to produce an object? To produce an object, obviously, you start with a computer in which you produce a computer model, which is a drawing of your object, but it's in three dimensions. So it has not only an X and Y dimension, but also a Z dimension for every point in your drawing. You upload that model into a 3D printer via a transformation that takes your model and turns it into a whole bunch of those layers. And then the printer realizes your model in three dimensions. There's a lot of technology in all of those pieces, but that's fundamentally how it works. I guess the last piece is a medium. And for us, the best medium is a light-sensitive acrylic resin, and that is used in stereolithography, which is the particular type of 3D printing that's most relevant for model railroaders. Again, folks will check our links, and there was a good sidebar article also in uh, Railroad Model Craftsman. So between your descriptions and that, I'm sure those less knowledgeable have a better idea. This is 
is widely described as rapid prototyping. How long has that been around? It's actually been around since the mid-80s. It went through, obviously, like most things, a, a long research phase. It's really started to take off in about the past five to ten years. Machines have become more and more capable in the past decade or so and more and more affordable in the past decade or so. Some of the printed surfaces are a bit rough. Is this analogous to the early days of digital photography where you didn't have the pixels? Are the generations of 3D printing giving us smoother and smoother surfaces? You can have actually an arbitrarily smooth surface today with stereolithography in particular. That's the one that's very good at producing smooth surfaces. The challenge is that in order to make very smooth surfaces, you need those layers to be very, very thin. And each of those layers is produced in about a constant length of time. So if you have very, very thin layers, then the time that you spend on the machine goes up. And machine time, of course, is money. So the cost of your object goes up with the smoothness. Oh, I see. And also, I'm told that some of the media used to print these models is very expensive in its own right as well. Is that correct? I think you have to weigh that against all of the the other benefits of using the technology from a production standpoint. Yeah, while the media itself is expensive, you skip out on many of the other costs of production at the same time. How do you foresee factories in the future? Will there be just rows and rows and rows of 3D printers, or will the primary purpose of 3D printers still be to produce prototype models for molding machines, uh, masters, if you will? Uh, well, certainly there are factories today that are rows and rows of 3D printers. In fact, there's a factory today that looks like that and is producing 3D printers which sort of boggles your mind a little bit. Terminator 2 just came into my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the thing is that 3D printing costs are going down year after year. It's already at a point where it's competitive with injection molding if you needed less than 1,000 copies of the thing. So while it's very good at doing prototypes, it's even competitive at short runs, which is actually very close to what we need in the model train hobby. Well, yes. I understand some home hobbyists are tinkering with their own 3D printers. MakerBot's Thingomatic, this is sort of, a, I guess, analogous to the old Heathkit days, I guess, when people dabbled in making their own uh, stereo equipment, things of that nature. Yeah, certainly. It's sort of at, yeah, exactly at the heat kit stage where, you know, people are putting these things together. They have actually quite low resolution. It's hard to see how you'd use them in our hobby, but you might use them around the house. So, for example, if a part of, uh, I don't know, your stroller broke, then you could scan the old part and put it back together again in the computer and print a new part out of it. But again, because they have low resolution and because the particular technology that's cheapest to produce, which is called fused deposition modeling, where basically those maker bots and RepRap machines basically squeeze out a molten bead of plastic, it produces a model quite quickly if that bead is thick. But if the bead is thin, then the time required is actually a cube of the thicker bead. So for example, if you had a bead that was a millimeter thick, then if you changed your bead to be a half a millimeter, which is still far too coarse for our purposes as model train guys, then the time is actually eight times as long to produce the model. So these are basically learning devices so people can understand the principle more than uh, perhaps something to enable them to make their own uh, 3D models at home. You've said 3D printing pretty much saved the Canada Atlantic for you. How was your layout the driver that pushed you to explore this technology? Well, I actually started exploring it because of the passenger car, but it had the happy side effect of learning about the technology and then applying it to the specific problem that confronts me as a modeler of the Canada Atlantic. The problem with the Canada Atlantic, which I think I'm actually the only person 
person modeling it on the planet as the Canada Atlantic. There's a couple of people modeling it as the Grand Trunk and so on. But in the Canada Atlantic times, the cars, almost all of them, ran on these double arch bar swing motion trucks, which are the ones that you've uh, got some S-scale copies of yourself. And prior to learning about 3D printing, the way I was producing these was I etched the side frames. I folded each side frame 17 times, then soldered in bearings, cast some journals and put them over the soldered bearings. And then I built up a bolster and put my wheels in and they, they roll like glass. They're beautifully rolling trucks. They're equalized. They're very nice, but they took me two weeks of free time to produce a pair of trucks. And if you're looking at more than a half a dozen cars like that, it's kind of tedious to contemplate building a whole railroad that way. So I was almost ready to throw in the towel on it. And I thought, well, why don't I try 3D printing a truck? And lo and behold, it worked. And so I've not abandoned the Canada Atlantic and gone to model the Pensy or something else, but I'm sticking with it for now. You've said on the blog, the future of the hobby lies with rapid prototyping and that we're in the dawn of a new era in model railroading. Can you fill in those thoughts for us? Model railroading is made for 3D printing, especially over the past two decades as the prototype modeling fraternity has really blossomed. We've become a group of people that want things that are infuriatingly specific for manufacturers. So, for example, my current project that I'm working on with 3D printing is for a bunch of friends here in southern BC who model the Canadian Pacific and southeastern BC where the CP ran ore trains and they need a specific ore car. There were 500 of these ore cars or similar enough ore cars that ran on the CP. They ran in captive service. So if you model Quebec or the prairies, you don't need one of these ore cars. But those modelers that are modeling southeastern BC need a couple of dozen probably. Probably there's 10 modelers that need these cars. Each need maybe 15, maybe two dozen. There's 150 cars, maybe 240 cars needed across the world of this particular type of car. You could build it as a resin kit. It looks a lot like one of the ore cars that ran in the superior region. You know, it's all, there's a hopper and then there's all sorts of stakes and sticks and ladders and side frames. It would be a very complicated, time-consuming kit in resin or in brass or any other medium. It would be hard to contemplate building a couple dozen of these. Yeah, you might sell 200 of them, but they would sit on the shelves. As a 3D model, because of the technology, basically you can take whatever it is you are trying to build, and if you can make it into layers, then you can build this ore car as a single piece, including, by the way, the brake rigging and the ladders and other elements that are entwined in all of the cavities in an ore car. That's um, the part of so, 3D printing that really blows me away, I think I must say, is the spaces yeah. you can leave in between what you're building. That's right. With a 3D printer, you can make things that are impossible to make any other way. You can build a wheel and an axle all at the same time. That's going to be very useful for general manufacturing going forward because where today, if you have a wheel and an axle, you have to have a machine that puts that wheel and an axle together. But if you print that wheel and axle together and they already run, then you don't actually have to have that assembly step. So going back to one of your previous questions about the cost of the material, yeah, the cost of the material and the machine is actually quite high, but it enables you to reduce your manufacturing steps, perhaps to only one manufacturing step, so the cost of the overall item is perhaps lower. 
I think that's what you're starting to see yeah. with companies like Burton exploring the use of 3D printing for snowboard bindings. This has all been very fascinating, Rene. We want to thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Again, we'll invite folks over to your website to check the links to this interview. And again, check out Rene's article in the March issue of Railroad Model Craftsman. Rene Gorley, thanks for being with us here on the Model Railway Show. It's my pleasure entirely. Anytime anyone wants to talk about 3D printing, I'm there. Yeah, you're the guy, all right. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Well, this is another emerging technology that we'll be watching closely, I think. Yes, indeed. Bit of serendipity there. We actually had Rennie lined up some time back, but the March RMC landed on our doorsteps, and there's Rennie's combine article along with a, a sidebar on scanning full-size locomotives for reducing to model size, something that Jason Schron himself had done only... At Rapido Trains. Yeah, yeah exactly. The next FP4 was a full-size scan from the model sitting at the Rail Expo Museum in Montreal. I Amazing. wonder how they got it on the scanner. <laughs> Well, I asked him. Apparently, they did it a couple of square feet at a time. They just set their reference points and moved the scanner along. Amazing. And then stitched it together. Of course, it's not a replacement for good modeling, though. I think the skills are important. And having stuff cranked out on a 3D printer, it's it's a case of garbage in, garbage out. You know what? You can say that. You're a good modeler. I'll take whatever help I can get. <laughs> well, listen, don't forget, you can find the Model Railway Show on Facebook. But however you find us, be sure to peek into our Flickr gallery where you can see the handiwork of our guests alongside the modeling efforts of the folks who put the show together. And drop by our swag shop where you can purchase souvenirs of the show. Well, it's time to apply the air and bring this thing to a stop. Next time out, my guest will be Dave Owens of the New England Northeast Prototype Modelers Meet. And Jim will chat with the mysterious Professor Kleisler from the land down under about a little layout that's big on ideas. Our thanks to our guests, Duncan McCree and Rennie Gourley, for being with us today. And our usual big thank you to our little team, Chris Abbott, Dave Woodhead, and Otto Vondrak for making us look and sound better than we are. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. We're glad you could join us here on the Model Railway Show. Ceramics, glass, even concrete. I had no idea. I knew about the plastic. The concrete amazes me. There are research programs now and possibly companies around the idea of 3D printing buildings. My gosh. I'm just trying to figure out. I, I can probably print my next lawn gnome. I, it just, that just came to me. Uh, what does it require in order to produce an object? <laughs> uh, I just broke Trevor up. Uh, <laughs> he'll be okay. Let's just move on here. <laughs>